0: Good evening and welcome I'm uh, starting with a screen share in fact everything tonight is on a presentation because I feel that it gives more clarity to what we are doing meditations for troubled times we looked at the paradox as a series recently the paradox of faith the paradox of God's promise the paradox of God's grace the paradox of interpreting God's commands And last week, because I was not feeling brilliantly well, I mucked up a bit of this paradox of writing God's story. Now, I'm not promising anything will be clearer. Uh, The points will be clearer, but that doesn't mean that it is going to clear anything in your mind. But remember, the series is called Meditations for Troubled Times. You know, troubled times are troubled times. Interpreting the Bible, this is something that I shared with you I said there are this literal interpretation that is verbal inspiration of every text as if God was holding the hands of the writers and uh, they could only write what God wanted to write. So, every ha- the handwriting, even the handwriting is kind of God's. It does not allow for individuality, style of the author or anything because it is God who is the author. Okay, we we looked at this. I'm not going to go into that in detail. The second is moral interpretation that is ethical principles for life, individuals and community at each period in human history. Then um, we looked at another uh, third one called allegorical interpretation. So seeks the meaning that is hidden in the text, uh, especially looking for types and shadows and creates the archetypes and prototypes and so on and builds everything on it. And we looked at probably the Levites, concubines, rapers, Jesus' sacrifice and so on. Then there is the mystical element to it. And I suggested that what I believe in probably is not necessarily mystical, but more like a mystery. Something must remain a mystery. Uh, God has revealed what we need to know. And if we do not understand something right now, let it be so. And not everything we are going to understand because some things are going to be hidden. You know, Jesus saying to his disciples, not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed. So we don't need to speculate about those things. We also looked at Paul saying, I know a man and uh, I have no idea what happened. I saw a lot of things, kind of things. I don't understand everything. Interpreting the scripture. This is where I think we looked at it last week, being truthful to the text, being cognizant of the context. In other words, being in touch with the context uh, of that time where it is written and being congruous with the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. These three things are very important. If there is a challenge, I would say I would go backwards. Start with number three. I look at what is the character of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Does that character fit into this present situation and the text? If it is not, I need to reread it, re-study it, re-look at it. That's how I'm, what I'm saying. Instead of fitting God to the text, we need to fit the text to God because the text has a human element to it. Of course, the question asked a couple of weeks ago was, how do we know that the character of God we talk about and revealed in Jesus Christ is actually what it is? Well, fantastic question. I am afraid uh, I can't give you an answer straight right now. But I think God is consistent and you can see God's character being revealed from Genesis to Revelation, and we need to be consistent in interpreting that. So we asked the question last week, was it necessary to remove the Canaanites from the land? And we answered this question like this, yes, they were evil people already marked for destruction. Then we said, yes, God did not like them. So he hardened their hearts and made them fight against Israel. So they had to go. And third, yes, because they worshiped other gods, they were idol worshippers and also they could have contaminated the faith of the Hebrews so they were removed. So these were some other things that we looked at. Then we asked the question were the Canaanites and their cities completely destroyed? We answered that no Israel was still fighting against them after Joshua died so it is very likely that they were not completely eradicated or destroyed. Secondly we said Uh, Joshua reminded the people that the land that God gave them was fully productive. He said it's a land that is uh, full of trees and fruit and vineyards and wattles and whatnot and uh, cities with houses. So obviously not everything was destroyed or burned or whatever. The third thing that we saw was no, uh, it was not completely destroyed because the conquerors and the conquered lived happily even after as we saw in Judges. Marrying each other and worshipping each other's gods. What about the biblical narratives that tell us that there was a genocide? You know, there seems to be enough text that tells us that there was a genocide or people were obliterated. So, my thought here is we don't need to make God look good by justifying violence. Okay, that's my first argument. Second, we don't need to make God violent because there is violence in the Bible. Thirdly, We don't need to sanitize the Bible because violence is not politically correct today. What I'm trying to say here is there is a lot of occurrence of violence recorded in the Bible. But did God sanction each one of them? And I will talk about that later on. It is like the prayers that we see in Psalms where we read that let their children be dashed on the rocks. Does it mean that God is going to pick up kids and dash them on the rocks? Or another prayer that says God break their teeth in their mouth. So what? God is going to go around breaking people's teeth? See, these things are recorded, but that doesn't mean that these are sanctioned by God or God is actively promoting it. So we don't need to sanitize the Bible because violence is not politically correct today. Our primary source for knowing God is the person and teachings of Jesus Christ which, of course, we find in the Gospels. If there is a conflict between the Gospel stories and the rest of the Bible, then the Gospel stories take preeminence. And the sixth point is we must not forget that the Gospel writers were aware of the Old Testament narratives. They did not change the Gospel to resolve the conflict in the Old Testament. They still wrote the Gospel exactly as it is, as Jesus taught, though they knew the Old Testament very well. So they knew there would be a conflict between the teachings of Christ and what was in the Old Testament. So they must have had a reason for recording the Christ factor just as it was. Now, my personal view concerning these paradoxes. Now, these are my personal views, but I want to put it out there because I was sharing some of these things a few months ago with a friend of mine and I said, I am pretty scared to go public with these thoughts. He said, no, you're old enough, you have studied enough, you've been in the ministry for long enough, you should go. So the blame squarely and wholly uh, goes to that person whose name I shall not mention yet. If he misbehaves, I will mention his name. The so-called genocide, complete destruction of people and land, did not happen as it is recorded in some sections of the Old Testament. That's my first point. Second, the Hebrews were a mixed group of people with mixed ethnic and religious background. They were not a pure race of somehow there is this children of Abraham. As we have pointed out before, even Judah's line comes through a a woman who did not belong to Abraham's family, i.e. Tama. Joseph married the daughter of the priest of Egypt. Moses had two wives, at least, and both were not of the Hebrew background and it just goes on and on and I'll just highlight a few of them uh, in a minute. Third, their religion was a mixture of Yahweh, one God, the pastoral deities like the golden calf and when they settled into Palestine, even got mixed up with the agricultural gods like Baal and Asherah. Israel very seldom worshipped one God. And that is right through the Old Testament, you can see, from beginning to end. They were condemned for not worshipping, but they never worshipped. They were a syncretic people, just like us. We think that we believe in Jesus Christ, but actually we, we, very few of us actually live consistent to the gospel truth. We have contaminated with everything else. How often are some of us who belong to certain backgrounds, even people who think they are evangelicals and so on and so forth, I have seen them putting money in a Catholic cross for good luck and the cross dedicated to Mother Mary or a Hindu temple. You know, syncretism is there everywhere. And these people were not exactly worshiping Yahweh the whole time. In spite of all this, the God of the universe, the one who revealed himself to Abraham and Moses remained faithful. And that is the point. This is not the story of a people. This is the story of the God of a people. This is something we need to understand. If we can get that into the system, we are safe. Then we will not have to protect God because God can look after himself. And then we we don't have to glorify a nation or a group of people because they are just as fallen as anybody else. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there is any goodness in us, it is because of God's grace. So. In spite of all this, in spite of the fact that the people in the Old Testament were a bunch of losers, and the people in the New Testament too, and the people in the church too, the God of the universe, and that is very important. This is a confession of the uh, the woman on the wall. Your God is the God of the universe. You think He is a little God. Joshua, you think your God is a little God. No, no, no. Your God is a very big God. He is the God of the universe. And that confession, comes from a Canaanite woman. And Jesus highlighted it. Jesus said during the time of Elijah, there were many lepers in Israel, but only one man was healed, a Syrian. And this is what got the Jews angry. And they wanted to kill him straight away. And then he said, there were many widows suffering, but the prophet was only sent to one widow, the widow of Zarephath, And she was a Canaanite woman. You see, Jesus highlighted this. He said, this is not your story. Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, priests, this is not your story. This is the story of the God of the Bible. My father, the very father, very God whom you have scandalized. Listen to me. If you knew my father, you would have known me, he said. And I'm sorry, I get excited here because this is something we need to understand. Please, please don't put a premium on Israel or any nation. This is a story of God. And the God of the Bible is an amazing God. He gave them prophets who declared the heart of God, the God of the whole universe. Very interesting. Have you noticed in Jesus' teaching, he hardly ever endorsed priests or kings, but he always endorsed the prophets. Do you remember he stood on the mount, looked at the city of Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stones them that are sent to you to prophesy, He did not say you who stoned the priest because priests were never stoned. They were wheelers and dealers in power. They were corrupt because they had power and they could manipulate God because they had direct access to God. Jesus never endorsed any priest. As far as I can see, there may be one. I don't know if you have, if you know of somebody that Jesus endorsed, please let me know. The three orders in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus only endorsed the prophets because they were the only ones who truly preached monotheism, Yahweh, one God. They truly preach the one God, Yahweh, and that we can see in the Old Testament very clearly, especially after the 7th century, 8th century. So my personal view concerning these paradoxes, there was a group in later Judaism who promoted exclusivity and special privileges. They promoted a doctrine of exclusivism, triumphalism, and chauvinism. This we can see in many places, but especially in a book like Esther, where Esther's life and the Jews life are threatened. But as soon as she gets power, she goes and does 10 times more evil than Haman ever intended. You see this coming through in the book of Nehemiah, exclusivism, triumphalism, and chauvinism. And you see this bits and pieces written back into the Old Testament. And that is where you see the annihilation of the nations. We butchered everyone. Come on, you were marrying their daughters and you were giving your daughters to them and you were happily living after worshipping their gods. Actually, that was the truth. But today we want to look good. We were never like that. We were always full-fledged evangelicals who believed the gospel and nothing else as long as nobody is watching us. And that's the truth. The prophets condemned these teachings. They exalted obedience and rejected sacrifice. And this is why Amos says, are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel? Did I wander your sacrifice in the desert? Did I ever ask you to bring me sacrifices, says the prophet. Or says, I have shown you O man what is right, how to live. You know, let righteousness run like perennial waters, and mercy like rivers. This is a completely different religion that the prophets preached an uncontaminated heart of God. So they rejected sacrifices and rituals as a means of true worship with God. King David understood this truth. No wonder God called him, a man after who understood my heart. He says, if I come before you with ten thousands of rams and a river full of oils, will you be happy God? No, because he knew that and he says, a broken and a contrite heart. That is what you desire. Broken and a contrite heart. No wonder this silly man was called a man who understood the heart of God. And we need to understand that. Jesus endorsed the teachings of these prophets and the true history of Israel as a chosen people to bring God's salvation to the whole world. He rejected the doctrine of exclusivism, triumphalism, and chauvinism. He said, if God wants to have children, he can create children for Abraham from stones. He doesn't need you. Sorry. And that's the truth. He also rejected all the extra laws and regulations. He called them burdens that you have placed on my people. Added to the commands of God by the vested interest groups. My personal view continuing, I'm not saying this is God's word, but this is how I understand. The so-called genocide, complete destruction of people and land did not happen as it is recorded in some sections of the Old Testament. The newly liberated slaves from Egypt were a mixed group of people. We read in Exodus chapter 12 verse 38, right at, at the beginning, at the happening of Exodus, a mixed multitude also went up with them or a mixed multitude went up with them also. It was not the children of exclusive children of Abraham, of course there are no exclusive children of Abraham, children of Abraham who escaped from Egypt. It's a mixed multitude. In some translations says a rabble. You couldn't even identify who was who. Even Moses married a woman from this mixed multitude. Mixed multitude was a group that included Egyptians, Ethiopians and other ethnic groups who had joined the tribes of Israel on Exodus. According to the Jewish tradition, they were accepted by Moses as an integral part of the people. And as I said, even Moses married a woman from this mixed multitude, the Cushite woman. And I think Moses' sister had some problems with it, and she had problems afterwards anyway. So the third point, only two people from the Egyptian exodus crossed the river into the promised land. It's very interesting, isn't it? No one except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, the question is, who is a Kenizzite? Have you ever thought of that? Or you just didn't bother? Who is a Kenizzite? I suppose Kenizzite must be somebody from Kenes, Kenya or something, I don't know. Kenizzite. Obviously, none of the tribes of Israel, because we don't have a Kenizzite in the tribe of Israel. Here we go. Genesis 15, 18. This is the Contract that God makes with Abraham the covenant after Abraham falls asleep and all that sort of stuff Genesis 15 on that day. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and Said to your descendants. I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the river great river Euphrates The land of Kenites. What's the next one? Shall we all read it together? Kenizzites, Kadomites Hittites, Perizzites Raphites, Ammonites, Canaanites, Gilgarshites and Jebusites. So Caleb was a Kenizzite, the city that was marked for destruction. The people who were supposed to have been completely obliterated by Joshua. I mean, this was in Genesis already, 15, long before the 12 tribes formed. Fascinating, isn't it? So what do you think I did most of this afternoon? Researching, researching, researching. There's been so many people trying backwards doing acrobatics to justify that actually these Kenesites are one of the 12 tribes. This great man of faith and hero of the Hebrews was from the nations that was destined for destruction. How did he get into this one of the two people who left Egypt and entered Ken, Because, the Bible says, they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. It looks like some of these people who were destined for destruction were the ones actually who followed the Lord wholeheartedly rather than the so-called children of Abraham. Or was he from the tribe of Judah, as Numbers 16, 6 says? And the truth is that the Kenizites, or some of the Kenesites, were adopted into the tribe of Judah. So my personal view continues on. The conquerors and the conquered, this we looked at last week, lived happily ever after, marrying each other, and worshipping each other's gods. The three judges, are, I think there are, how many judges are there, 13 or something, is it, in the book of Judges? I I even memorize their names, I don't know why. It's under school easy. I wish if they taught me about God rather than the names of these silly judges. Three out of these 13 judges or something, were or seven judges. Uh, they were not of the tall tribes. Othniel was Caleb's brother. And if Caleb was a, what was he? I forgot already. Some perisite. No, not perisite. The other side. You know, then his brother, Othniel, obviously was not uh, one of the tribes. Shamgar, the son of Anath. Anath were the giants that they were uh, Anak, uh, They were supposed to destroy and all that. Maximus, a non-Israelite. And third, Jael, the killer of Sisera, was a Kenite, a tribe of the Canaanites. They were supposed to have been destroyed. But they were the leaders. These guys were leading Israel. And yet, they were all supposed to have been obliterated. Joshua said, I killed them all. Well, Joshua didn't say. Somebody said in the book of Joshua. Now, continue the story. Uriah and Bathsheba. We all know the story of Uriah and Bathsheba. Who was Uriah? Uriah was called a Hittite. Hey, all the Hittites are supposed to have been obliterated. And yet, Uriah was a Hittite. If all the Hittites were exterminated, what is he doing in David's army? And being loyally serving him he's one of the nicer guys in the army compared to job job was so bad because he was so hungry for power David says go and kill this guy he goes and kills this fellow go and get that woman he goes and get but Uriah says no I, I have to I, I am a morally obliged person I'm not going to do the wrong thing now Job the great patriarch the nationality of Job and his friends are not known is not known they were most likely descendants of Esau not Jacob okay God's plans for the world in Genesis 12 2 to 3. This is where we see the heart of God. Genesis 12, 2 to 3, we read, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The woman on the wall knew this. She must have read the Bible better than anybody else. All the nations will be call themselves blessed because of you. You see, there is no exclusivity here. There is no chauvinism here. There is no mass murder here. Secondly, Israel existed to be a light to the nations, not to exterminate the nations. This we see in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 40 to 55. Of course, the whole theme of Jonah, who obviously was a chauvinist, he wanted to commit suicide. Three times he says, I want to kill myself or please kill me, because he couldn't handle the repentance of the people of Nineveh. Prophet Zechariah again speaks of this. Now, when we come to the New Testament, Simon the devout, when he sees the, the, the newborn baby, Jesus, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation to God. He praises God and says, My eyes have seen you. salvation, which you have prepared in the light, sight of all nations, all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It is possible for a group of people to have glory without obliterating everybody else around them. This is something we need to understand. It is possible for two groups of people to coexist. It is possible for Cain and Abel to live together. And that we need to understand. We don't need to have one person to be rejected so that another person to be accepted. God can hold two, even opposing things together. That's why they're called paradoxes. For my eyes have seen, what a beautiful prophecy, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, the confession of the woman on the wall. a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people. It is possible for the Gentiles to have light and Israel to have glory at the same time. You don't need to exterminate the Gentiles so that Israel can have glory. Both can be in balance. When we come further down in the reading of the Bible, Peter and the Sheet from Heaven. What a beautiful vision it is. Open your eyes to see the vision of God. Isn't that amazing that Peter was able to see this? He says, he saw heaven opened. And this is what is happens every time heaven opens, something amazing happens. And that amazing has the entire world in perspective, not just little groups of people, pockets of people, not just the Baptists or the, the Pentecostals or anything like that. The whole world is in mind. He saw heaven opened. Let us see the open heaven. And something like a large sheet. There was enough space on this large sheet For all kinds of animals, that's the beauty of it. Not just the holy animals. Our vision of God must be large enough to incorporate all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then the voice said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, I have never eaten anything unholy. God said, What I have sanctified don't call unholy. There are no unholy people, Peter. Everything is holy because I created everything in my image. All human beings, men and women, created in the image of God. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God declares it clean. There is no genocide. God doesn't have to murder people to preserve the glory of some people. It is possible for One group to have light and another group to have glory. The multitude in Revelation. Oh, what a beautiful sight this is when we actually not have an opening, when we get to heaven. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Does that give you a little glimpse of what might have happened when Moses was coming out of Egypt? A great multitude. A rabble of people followed Him. Multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. What an amazing vision of God and God's throne. I know I asked you to read Exodus 32 and make sure that you giggle. I hope you have done it. But before uh, I get to that, I don't think we will deal with it. But I just wanted you to. I want to finish off actually with the next couple of slides. There's this is beautiful poem. The following poem by country Patmore describes the crowd behavior at a public London hanging. This is a long time ago, of course. They when they used to hang people in public places, and in some countries they still do it. It highlights the danger of ritualized violence and mindless mimicry in the name of justice or in the name of God. Listen to this little poem. The dangling corpse hung straight and still. The shore complete. The pleasure passed because he's dead. The solid masses loosened fast. They began to disappear. A thief shrunk off with ample spoil. Nothing has changed. The thief is still stealing to ply elsewhere his daily toil. A baby strung its doll to a stick. Why? Because that's what the baby just saw, didn't he? A mother prays the pretty trick. Says, wow, what a clever little child you are. Because you could hang your doll. Two children caught and hanged a cat. Two friends walked on in lively chat. And two who had disputed places went forth to fight with murderous faces. Violence achieves nothing. That's what commentary partmore says here. It only propagates violence. Violence breeds violence. If the God of the Bible is a violent God, then the message of the Bible is hatred, murder, war, and obliteration. But that is not the message of the Bible. We repeat what we see, even if we may not morally agree with it. What we repeat becomes a habit. A habit is a learned behavior which does not require logic or reasoning for its execution. A habit can develop into a theory and even a theology. Once it is given divine sanction, it becomes a sacred myth, a holy writ. Devotees would sacrifice their lives for its preservation and promotion. And need I say what is happening in France? right now isn't this what it is once it is given divine sanction it becomes sacred myth a holy writ devotees would sacrifice their lives and become suicide bombers for its preservation and promotion a habit is a learned behavior which does not require logic or reasoning for its execution jesus said if the light in you is dark this is my last bit for today the jewish religious leaders who put jesus to death had no hesitation in declaring that they were acting on behalf of God, doing him a favor. But the God whom Jesus came to reveal seems to be very different from this violent people hating God. He loved his enemies and taught his followers to pray for those who persecuted them. If you read the Bible carefully, we will find that God does not change. He is the same. yesterday today and forever. And we find this God in the Old Testament. We find this God in the New Testament. This God is the God of the Kenizzite and the God of Caleb, one man who was faithful in spite of all that was going around him. This God is the God of the woman on the wall, a prostitute, someone who remained and saw God as the God of the universe in spite of all that was going on. And we need to understand that. God does not establish his kingdom by obliterating a group of people for the sake of another group of people. I had prepared a bit more, but I think this is enough for today. I do hope that you will think about what I have shared with you. Look to the Bible, read it proactively, creatively, and see where things have gone wrong for yourself. And I don't want to confuse you by saying anything more tonight because I think I've given you enough to think about. God bless you and thank you very much.